You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to talk about whether Kant, the great German philosopher, was more ethical than the Avot. Well, the title is really a question, big question mark. How could that possibly be? that a German philosopher would be more ethical than the great forefathers that we know from Sefer Brave Sheet in the Torah? Well, hopefully I'm going to answer that and justify the forefathers as, in fact, being more ethical. But the challenge is a serious challenge. First part is Kant. So Kant has this thing some of you might have heard about called the categorical imperative. I'm not going to explain it to you. It would take too long. But one thing that I'm going to tell you about it is that according to Kant's categorical imperative, a person can't lie. Never. Under any circumstances. That seems to be a very rigorous ethic. Of course, Other philosophers have attacked it for being too rigorous in the sense that not lying can sometimes lead to another person's death, right? A gangster comes to you and says, you need to tell me where Mr. X is. And if you lie, then you're going to help Mr. X get away from the gangster. If you tell the truth, then you may be an accomplice on some level to the murder that's going to happen. Of course, there's a third way to keep silent, which uh, Kant says is the preferred way, but assuming one has a choice of emet of truth and falsehood, Kant says you have to go with the truth no matter what. Well, one sees the problem with Kant, but on the other hand, the approach that we see in Sif Breshit is full of problems as well. Namely, the forefathers seem to take the absolute opposite approach, that whenever one can lie and benefit from it, then one should lie. Again, obviously I'm oversimplifying and we're going to explain that that's not the case, but a simple perusal of the many stories that we've had, starting in this week's Parsha going backwards, might lead us to that conclusion. In this week's Parsha, we have Yosef pretending to be someone he's not, or at least hiding his true identity from his brothers in order to create some sort of plot, which maybe we'll speak more about in two weeks' time. Um, In any case, he is dealing with them in a nice way, we could call that cunningly, but in fact, he's deceiving them. And this deception seems to be, this approach of deception seems to be a family tradition, right? Going to from one generation to another backwards, we know Yaakov uh, Avinu has one of the most difficult lines and bold-faced lies that we find in the Torah. I'm Esav, your firstborn. Um, it's such a difficult lie that Rashi goes out of his way and takes a very unusual approach to this verse in order to uh, read it in such a way that it's not a lie. 
one of the most difficult Rashi's, perhaps the most difficult Rashi, uh, to understand uh, in in the context of Rashi's approach in the entire Tanakh, in the entire Bible. Now, that, as I said, is not the first of it. We went back one generation, but if you go back two generations, well, Yitzhak tells Avimelech that his wife Rivka is not his wife, but rather his sister. Of course, he learned that from his father, who said the same thing. And there are other stories like this, uh, such that one might think that if Khan says you can never lie, it would seem like Sefer Breshit says you can always lie. But obviously we know that's not the case. And the important place of truth in the Jewish tradition is known to all of us. But I'm going to ask a question, a question from this week's Dvar Torah, this week's Parsha essay that you can read on the Jewish press later this week or sign up if you're not getting it already uh, from my subscription. Uh, and the question is as follows. Yehuda in the middle of this week's Parsha, takes on the leadership role of the family. We know Yosef and Yehuda are both the continuation of leadership after Yaakov. Yaakov is the last unitary patriarch, he is the last of the three patriarchs. Um, and in as much as there was one leader, the first three generations from now on, there's going to be multiple leaders. Uh, the next time we hear about leaders, we're going to speak about Moshe and Aaron as, as two leaders, right? Uh, and here, too, we have two brothers taking on leadership role. In any case, in the middle of this week's parsha, uh, Yehuda surprises, perhaps even himself, but surprises his brothers and his father by stepping up to the plate and telling his father in no uncertain words that they must take Binyamin they must bring Benjamin down to meet the viceroy of Egypt. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to come back to him and get food in order to keep their family sustained and nourished and fed and for them to avoid death, as, as, uh, as, as it's put in the parsha. So I'm going to ask a question that I asked in the Devar Torah. And that is along the lines that we mentioned earlier, along the lines of the family tradition of deceiving others when there you find yourself in a difficult predicament. And again, against Kant, contra Kant, we know other philosophers say that there are times <clears throat> when lying is appropriate, is the more moral choice. And essentially that's what happens in these other stories. Um, we can go through them one by one, and there obviously are questions and discussions on each one of them. But the bottom line, the, the assumption is that in each of the stories, the better approach is to deceive the other, because telling the truth would have resulted in something even worse. Now, getting back to my question about Yehuda. Yehuda has this family tradition of deceiving people, especially deceiving people with false identities, in order to get out of difficult predicaments. Okay, that's where they are now, meaning 
they are in a difficult predicament. Yaakov, his father, Jacob, Israel, is claiming that it's extremely difficult for him to let Benjamin, to let Benjamin go down with the brothers. He's already had difficult experience, very trauma, traumatizing experience with Yosef, who he believes is dead. Um, and at this point, there's another brother that's stuck in an Egyptian prison. So we can understand the difficulty Yaakov, the father, has with Benjamin, especially as he mentions, as mentioned, the Benjamin is the last and the only remaining of Rachel's two sons. Rachel having a special place in Yaakov's heart in particular. So this is a difficult bind. It's a lose-lose. There's no way to win, right? If you go down to Egypt without Benjamin, without Benjamin, so the viceroy is likely to, at best case scenario, tell you to go right back to where you came from without any food, and possibly worse. If one takes Benjamin, with them, then who knows what will happen to Yaakov, especially if the viceroy plays, plays another trick and decides to keep in Yamin, which is almost what happens. So why doesn't, this is the question I ask, why doesn't Yehuda suggest the following? This viceroy, remember they don't know it's Yosef, this viceroy doesn't know what our brother looks like. And in fact, not only does he not know what our brother looks like, he doesn't think that this brother is going to look too much like the others. He's the only one from this mother that he's going to see. And therefore, the resemblance will at best only be partial to the other brothers. So why not find one of their servants, presumably we're dealing with a wealthy family with servants, take one of the servants or one of the neighbors, or one of the friends, or one of the business partners, and dress him up as Benjamin. Case closed. Everybody wins. The viceroy is fooled. He believes they've kept their part of the deal, gives them the food. They go back to Jacob, who has not had the difficulty of separating from Benjamin. Great. This is a tremendous solution. Question is, why doesn't Yehuda? Go with that. And I think the answer is to be found in the Gemara, in the Talmud, in Tractate Psachim, where there's a somewhat amusing story um, about one of the great Amoraim, one of the great teachers um, in the Talmud, whose name was Rav. And Rav apparently had a difficult relationship with his wife that uh, the Gemara tells us, I'm looking at the Gemara in Yevamot, on Daf Samech Gimel Amad Aleph, that's 63a, in Yevamot, is that what I said? Yevamot is the Gemara I'm looking at, 63a. And over there, it tells us the story of Rav and his wife. Now, the vignette that it shares with us is that the custom of Rav's wife would be to prepare him the opposite of what he wanted for dinner, right? The, the Gemara says apparently their menu was fairly limited. It was uh, lentils or peas, 
uh, one or the other, and whatever Rav would ask for, she would make the other thing. Rav had a son named Chia, and Chia's son figured this out uh, quickly when he grew up, and he decided that he would make things better for his parents, or really for his father, by switching the menu. He would serve as the waiter for his father, bring the order to his mother, and would switch it. If Rav said peas, he would say lentils, and vice versa, such that Rav always would get now what he wanted. And so he makes a approving comment about his wife to his son Chia, and he um, he, under, he he finds out, or the uh, son Chia tells him, that his mother, meaning Rav's wife, has not changed at all, but he's found this new approach in order to get him what he wants. Rav, however, says that this is not the way to go. And he quotes a verse in Yirmiyahu, and he says the problem with this is uh, taking the snippet from the verse in Yirmiyahu, it's uh, nine four chapter nine verse four. Idabrul, sorry, limdu leshonam davar sheker that they will teach their mouths to speak falsely. That if you do this when you don't have to do it, then you're going to get used to it. And I think that's the answer to why Yehuda did not rely upon the family tradition. So long as there was no other way that telling the truth was impossible, right? There was only two ways, telling the truth and surviving, excuse me, telling the truth and dying, being destroyed, or to tell a lie and surviving, then clearly the latter was the better option. However, in this case, Yehuda understands that there's a time to move on. There's a time to say, I don't have to use what we call bidi avad standards. I don't have to use standards that are meant to be used only in an appropriate situation, but not meant to become habit. I think that's the issue. I think that's the issue that Torah teaches us that yes, we are allowed to take upon ourselves a lower level of morality in different situations, in wartime footing, for example, um, in situations where there's danger to life. It's not so much that we're taking on a lower level of ethics or morality, as I just said, but rather we're saying that the sanctity of life trumps the importance of truth. However, Yehuda teaches us that we need to differentiate and decide when we are simply using a lower standard when we should not be doing so. And this is critical. This is critical. Just give you an example and then we'll sign off for this week. We know in the Jewish tradition that a person is allowed to lie in order to maintain what we call shalom bayit. Shalom bayit is an expression for domestic peace, meaning peace between husband and wife. 
So I'm not a posek, and I'm not telling you definitively that you're allowed to do this, but it would seem to me that if you forget your wife's birthday and she would be hurt by it, and presumably she will be hurt by it, then you're allowed to lie and pretend that you didn't forget it, right? Obviously, uh, you may get be, be caught, but assuming you won't be caught and you find a way to say that you did not forget it and therefore and thereby maintain harmonious relationship with your wife, then it would seem to be that you're allowed to do so. So, and that may in fact be the preferred course. However, there's a difference between telling uh, an untruth in this situation and having a ball doing so and regaling yourself about how much you, you've known about her birthday and you've been preparing it for, uh, preparing for it for weeks and so on and so forth. One has to understand that when one is dealing with a bidiavad ethic, that when one, when one is dealing with an ethic that's only permissible because of the certain circumstances that one is in, not to adopt it as our standard and as our mainstream ethic. And that's the teaching, I think, of Yehuda. That's it for this week. And please. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.